Hello, my name is Paul Kearney and I'm a Professor of Politics and Public Policy. And this is a series of short podcasts to accompany my series of blog posts which introduce key public policy concepts and theories in 1,000 words. This one is on power and ideas and it's worth listening to uh, alongside the podcast on framing. Now, these two concepts have separate chapters in my book, but if you read up on either concept... You might notice they only seem to make sense in relation to each other. It's hard to describe one without describing the other. So, for example, many discussions of power are about much more than the use of material resources to get what you want. They're about using or exploiting the ways in which people think or what people believe to get what they want. Now, you can pick up this point in the definitions I give you in the blog post in box 11.1, which sits below box 3.1, which gives you a gazillion ways to define power. Note that um, alongside definitions which talk about material resources, economic, military, governmental, there are definitions of power based on knowledge, language, and the ability to influence the ways in which people understand their interests and make choices. Now, in both cases, power and ideas, the literature is huge and it's potentially unwieldy. So we need to come up with, you know, some themes or ways to break it down. So I want to do that by focusing on the the methodological side or the research questions you might produce. So, for example, how can we turn this discussion, this broad discussion of power, into something that you can research empirically as well as theorise? Now, in that context, there are two key points. The first is, a good rule of thumb is that the more profound and worrying kinds of power we discuss, the more uh, difficult they are to observe and to, you know, to, to measure empirically. So, you know, point two. In other words, a lot of the debate is about the extent to which you can move from theorising fundamentally important power relations to demonstrating empirically that they exist or have an effect on policy outcomes. Now, a kind of classic way into that to see how these issues play out is in the so-called community power debate between so-called elitists and pluralists. Now, these are not brilliant terms to describe people, but it's a nice shorthand to get us through it. So we start off with you know early post-war studies of elitism in the US, and the most relevant study is by Floyd Hunter, who identified a a power elite based on reputational power, you know, essentially a survey in which he asked people to identify who the most people, uh, powerful people were in a community. And it kind of goes alongside, you know, a study by, for example, C. Wright Mills, who who pretty much identified what you'd, you'd call a military industrial complex, you know, a collection of elites controlling, you know, the major sources of power within society. Now that's a neat way into, uh, you know, uh, pluralism, and you know the, the, the sort of classic classic author representing pluralism was Dahl, who criticised uh, the methods of scholars like Hunter, describing them to some extent as self-fulfilling. You know, if you ask people who is powerful, you'll get this list of elites. And, you know, he said something like, you know, you really should be asking people, 
is anyone powerful within this community? Now his alternative, which be, you know, came to be known as pluralist methods, is you observe the outcomes of key and key decisions, the most important decisions in a community, and you identify the powerful and powerless that way. The powerful are the people who win, perhaps they win uh, on on many occasions, and the powerless are those who lose. So you've got a combo, you know, you've got a, a difference of preferences. You have to decide between uh, one of those preferences, and whoever wins is is powerful. So note Dahl's classic statement, which is that A has power over B to the extent that he can, or really it should be he does, get B to do something that B would not otherwise do. Okay, so bear in mind, the, you know, everyone, they were all men back then. All, all powerful people were men. So to, de to demonstrate this power, Dahl suggests you have to identify certain things. A's resources, A's means to exploit those resources, A's willingness to engage in political action, the amount of power exerted or threatened by A, and the effect of A's actions on B. You know, so Dahl suggests you have to identify these things to, you know, to sort of provide a, a cause and effect explanation of power. Then he identified these key political choices in our community, and he had to involve a significant conflict of preferences to suggest that the powerful are those that benefit from so-called concrete outcomes. And what he found in, in his studies is, you know, there were inequalities of outcome in many areas, but in, in an overall sense, there was no coordinated control of the policy process by the same elites. So it's a sort of form of competitive elitism. Now, subsequent debates, uh, now we're kind of getting into the late 60s, early 70s, were based on a, a critique of these pluralist methods. So perhaps most notably, Bachrach and Barrett's argued that there was a second phase of power exercised before Dahl's key political choices could take place. So they suggest that power is not simply about visible and uh, you know easily observable conflicts, because it can relate to two main barriers to engagement. Now the first barrier is that. Uh, there may be uh, sort of dominant social attitudes within society that preclude government action. Now, the classic uh, case is, is poverty. If most people feel that poverty is the, the fault of the individual, they may not think that there's a reason for the government to get involved. So groups can exercise power to reinforce those social attitudes to make sure governments never get involved in the public policy. Now, that would not be picked up when I focus on political choices, because no choice would be made in that sense. A second barrier, you know, closer to those choices, is what you would now talk about with agenda setting. So groups exercise power to keep some issues on the agenda at the expense of others. Now, you can think that uh, you know, literally as an agenda, which is a list of points you know, a, a list of points to be discussed, and people exercise power to make sure some issues are not discussed. Now, that kind of idea links very strongly to Schatzschneider's realist uh, view of democracy, semi-sovereign people. 
And if you look at the post, I'll give you a link to a separate blog post on that, uh, in which he discusses concepts like the mobilisation of bias. So have a read of that to see what the connection is with Bacharach and Barrett's. Then you have Luxe's third dimension of power, which you know, partly suggests that people or organisations can be powerful without acting or appearing to act. Now, some of this is based on Crenson's classic study of US air pollution, the unpolitics of air pollution. And Crenson found that air pollution regulations were relatively low in a town called Gary in Indiana, partly because the people of that town were heavily dependent for employment on US steel. So if you compared Gary, Indiana with a, you know, an otherwise comparable town, you would find that regulations were much higher in that other place. Now, part of the point is that if, if you used these pluralist methods, all you would see is inactivity. Or you would see explicit agreement between the population and the company and, it's, and, and the, you know, the local government on minimal regulations. Now, Crenson and Luke suggest that this would hide, disguise a power relationship in which one group, which is US Steel, benefits clearly at the expense of another, which is Gary's you know, increasingly ill population. Now, the, the next point is that US Steel was powerful without having to act, and the town's public was powerless because it felt unable to act. So if you look at that, you know, it didn't appear... US Steel acted to exercise power at all. Instead, people were acting in anticipation of what US Steel might do, trying to anticipate what they wanted. Now, Lux takes those ideas further, you know, linking it to the old classic discussions, the, the sort of Marxist descriptions of the exploitation of the working classes within a, a capitalist system. So, and, you know, again, if you were using pluralist methods, he would suggest you would observe often a consensus between capitalists and workers, but with one benefiting at the expense of the other. And you know, there's that classic discussion. If only they knew their real interests, if they knew they were powerless, they would do something different. Then you have uh, Foucault who describes a further dimension of power, you know, sometimes called the fourth dimension of power, but you know, this, this amount of dimensions gets a bit silly after a while. But he draws on the idea of a society modelled on a prison. And he's talking about you know, the power of the state, or key elites within the state, to monitor and punish. And it suggests this may reach the point in which citizens assume that they're always visible, and they act accordingly. So they've got this phrase, the perfection of power associated with the all-seeing panopticon, which is the image I give you in the post, you know, associated with the idea that you can design a place within a prison in which you can see all the inmates. And the idea is that that renders the visible exercise of power unnecessary because people will act to regulate themselves if they think they're being watched. So the idea is that individuals accept that discipline is a fact of life, they anticipate the consequences of their actions, and they regulate their own behaviour. So it suggests control can be so embedded in our psyches, or our knowledge or our language, that it becomes normalised and invisible. You know, so intuitively we know which forms of behaviour 
are deviant and should be regulated or punished. Yeah, you know, and and in fact, a yeah, classic example of that is is mental illness, where you know you know what is you know deviant behaviour. So it suggests that power is exercised not merely by the state, but also individuals who either control their own behaviour, or they they help control behaviour of other people. And again, you would not find that in a study of key political decisions. In in some sense, you would find it in the individuals controlling themselves without really having an ability to articulate it. So, you know, it'd be hard to pick up even in, in observation or interviews. Now, in each of these cases, the argument relies as much on a discussion of ideas as it does power. Okay. So if you think back, the discussions of agenda setting, they focus on the ability of groups to frame issues, for example, as innocuous or for specialists, to help limit the number of participants in the, the policy process. So that's about the use of knowledge or information to manipulate or persuade people. Then you have Bachrach and Barrett's first barrier to engagement, which is a, a dominant set of beliefs held within society that people can exercise power to exploit. Again, this is really a focus on, on ideas. Then you have Luke's third dimension of power, which focuses on what people believe to be their real interests and the extent to which those beliefs or perceptions can be manipulated. So Lux describes, for example, this Gramscian idea of hegemony in which the most powerful actors decide which issues are most worthy of attention, which, act, which actions are right or wrong. And these, these understandings become you know, taken for granted, natural, rarely questioned. Then you have Foucault's idea of social control based on you know, widely held beliefs or knowledge of normality and deviance. So in this context, you can see ideas can be used to you know, limit policy change, for example, by excluding participants who hold beliefs you know, that challenge current arrangements, or by those excluded groups to challenge barriers to policy-making engagement. So that's one thing to follow up there is about the extent to which these arrangements can ever be challenged. You know, I think a great thing to follow up there is Bachrach and Barrett's power and poverty because they suggest, you know, these uh, forms of power endured for decades. But in the study they talked about, which was, which was partly to do with race and Baltimore, you know, some of these barriers were overcome eventually. Okay, so where do we go from here? Now, that's a very kind of short um, introduction to the literatures on power of ideas. And they're vast. I mean, I don't think in your lifetime you can get through all this material. And they're not necessarily coherent. So part of the reason why we have so many definitions, so many discussions is, you know, a lot of people are talking past each other, certainly not talking to each other. So be careful with these descriptions of power. You know, really think about what they mean and how they link with other descriptions. Now, you don't have quite the same problem with ideas, but you certainly have multiple meanings that you should pay attention to. And you have a look at the post on framing, uh, which, which identifies these kind of things. So you have one kind of idea relating, you know, notion of idea relating to the kind of visible process of persuasion manipulation, the use of information or beliefs to persuade. Then you have 
that less visible or structural idea of you know core beliefs or hegemons or paradigms you know the kinds of uh, understandings that are taken for granted and often seen as natural and they underpin that process of persuasion then you have a more an intuitive understanding of ideas which is you know i have an idea so that's a, a policy solution so if it, so then if you look at uh, the multiple streams post that's really when they talk about ideas that's really a policy solution they're talking about so remember that remember there are three different well at least three different ways in which you can talk about ideas a hundred different ways in which you can talk about power so so bear that in mind and consider how those themes play out in each post or podcast. How do they describe those same ideas? Now, the final thing to say is that there are lots of other discussions. So I mentioned a couple in the post. The first is, um, it used to be more popular, particularly when talking about you know class, uh, to talk about structural power carried out by individuals. And there was a sense in which individuals didn't have much or any autonomy or choice so they acted they acted out the interests of particular classes we tend not to talk in those terms anymore we talk about some combination of individuals making choices and the rules and norms that influence their behavior so you know compare this discussion with that on the new institutionalism i'll give you a sense of that the other uh, concept is luck now, I'm going to do a separate post on this, or sorry, a separate uh, podcast on this, because there's a lot of um, value to focusing on systematic luck. But it's, it tends to be undermined by ambiguity. You know, I think people think when you talk about luck, you're talking about random chance. But the benefit here is that a lot of concepts or a lot of discussions equate power or measure power according to outcomes. So the powerful benefit from decisions and the powerless lose out. So um, the idea of systematic luck is that you can sort of separate uh, people benefiting from decisions based on the power that you exercise and people benefiting from outcomes secured by the actions of other people. So what happens if other people pursue their own interests and someone uh, you know, benefits systematically from that. It's, 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 a, it's difficult to call that an exercise of power so much as a, uh, you know, a systematic luck. So look out for that one. Okay, thank you.